This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. In our effort to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk regulation and compliance, we also love partnering with other podcast channels. And this episode, I was lucky enough to join Julia Streets on the Diversity Podcast. That's diversity with a C. I love Julia's podcast on diversity covering so many topics with real practical advice. And I hope that you will enjoy this one where I'm on the other side of the microphone. Thanks for listening to Risky Women Radio. Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And as regular listeners will know, on each episode, we invite two guests with the intention of hearing a diversity of opinion. Largely, we hit this objective, but sadly, one of our guests has today called off sick. Of course, we wish him a speedy recovery, hoping that it wasn't the prospect of being on the show that brought on the nausea. And we hope that they'll come back for another episode. And where we can, we always aim to accommodate but in truth, time waits for no international businesswoman. And we're really delighted today to be joined by Kimberly Cole, a truly international risky woman. I say that because she is the founder of Risky Women and has her own podcast of the same name. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Julia. Great to be here. So let me tell you a bit about Kimberly. Kimberly Cole is the head of solution sales, financial and risk at Thomson Reuters in Asia. And we are fortunate to catch Kimberly on her European visit, for she is based in Hong Kong, leading her 150 strong Asian sales team. Her career has taken her across the globe, allowing her to live and work in five cities, giving Kimberly a vast array of experiences, where she has held roles from product management to marketing and sales, managing business transformation and turnaround projects. Kimberly co-founded Women in Finance Asia, connecting networks across financial institutions and Risky Women, a global network championing and celebrating women in governance, risk and compliance. If that's not enough, in 2015, Kimberly launched Trust Forum Asia, an annual event designed to take action to stop modern day slavery, where she brings together governments, corporations, banks and NGOs. She is also a director of Thomson Reuters Hong Kong, Lippa Asia, and a non-executive director of the Fair Employment Foundation. Kimberly, it's wonderful to have you here. So, so let's start, I'm, I'm picking that. I mean, this is an enormous amount in, in your ca- career history. Um, let's start with Risky Women. It feels more than just a podcast. It feels a bit like a movement. Tell us how it all began. Yeah, so my role, as you said, my sort of day-to-day role is head of sales for um, financial and risk. And uh the role kind of expanded from just being our financial-based customers to our risk and compliance-based customers. And as I went out to see more and more of chief compliance officers and risk officers, there seemed to be um, a lot more women in those roles than perhaps I was sort of encountering on the financial side. So I jokingly used to say, I'm off to see another risky woman. And then we 
we run large uh, regulatory summits and I thought, why don't we bring together the women who are in that audience and have a have an event, I guess it just started as. So we started off with breakfast and we had particular um, female experts uh, addressing that audience and it grew from there. So we started in Hong Kong. Um, we then went to... Uh, Singapore next or Sydney, but we did sort of Asia. So everywhere we had a regulatory summit, we ran an event. So it started actually being live events. Um, and uh, then London, Zurich, then we've gone to the States. We've done New York, Chicago, San Francisco, um, Toronto, Canada, and I'm probably missing one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's over what sort of time span? So we've been going for... Four and a bit years, almost five years now. And then how do you do that? Do you, do you have a uh, then kind of champion risky women around the world at kind of a high level network who organize all those Correct. things? So it's so like you on like planes. A, a franchise model. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> I have what I call risky women in a box. Um, <laughs> not that. literally though. <laughs> and uh, we basically, you know, we have the, the invites and um, particular topics we cover. So uh, we do a great um, survey every year that's called the cost of compliance. And uh, we will then have, you know, one of our team come and speak to the audience about, you know, what have been the trends this year for the cost of compliance. We have another one around conduct risk and, you know, particularly uh, focused around the, you know, governance risk and compliance space. Although to be fair, because we will do sometimes a two-day summit and that is covering all of your, um, you know, hot topics around governance risk and compliance. So if we do a dinner, we've often done topics like, taking the risk out of choosing your wine and uh, <laughs> brings together a, a wine tasting event because, you know, you can't just talk governance, risk and compliance the whole time. <laughs> and, and when you uh, when you you mentioned sort of going around at the very, at the very beginning, you, you were quite surprised by the number of women in senior government compliance and risk roles. Uh, do you, are you seeing that more and more women are coming in? Are you seeing any shifting dynamic? And, and, and why is it a role that's particularly suited to women? Yeah, well, so I'm not sure. I've been trying to get some stats around that because I still don't think there really are um, a significant number of women. And there was a couple of surveys that were done by some of the kind of recruitment and other agencies, PwC, et cetera. So, and Marsh McLennan did one and said that only 15% of chief risk officers are women. That was in 2016. Um and PwC also had a study showing that there was growth in the number of women um, in the in the risk um, top managers space. And from 2015 to 2017, it had gone from 37 to 42%. So I don't know whether it's anecdotal that there appeared or it's just disproportionate compared to the financial markets where it's so male dominated that therefore there did appear to be more women in the risk space. And to your second, you know, point about is it a profession that's particularly suited to, to women, I think when I ask a lot of the compliance officers, they do um, think that there are some attributes where um, I think certainly in the compliance space now you need to be more integrated in the business and you need to be um, potentially, you know, more approachable and collaborative. And so some of those skills are coming through that you, it's not an adversarial thing to stop people doing things, but it's much more about 
um, helping and collaborating to make sure that, yes, the business isn't at risk, um, but that people know also what they need to do to be compliant. And, and there's an enormous amount uh I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about the shift in the responsibilities on compliance officers over the years, obviously with, with increasing regulations since the, since the economic crisis. And one of the arguments there has been, you know, actually if there were greater diversity on boards and if there were greater diversity in senior leadership positions, you know, would we necessarily be in the position that we found ourselves in? Now, I'm not asking you to comment on the global economic crisis, <laughs> but, but it's an interesting topic that, that still continues to come back. Is, is that something that you and... Um, your peers think about in terms of driving diversity to ensure things like that don't happen again? What are the big yeah, driving so the, topics? So the, the tone at the top and all of the cultural aspects, I think, are huge. And they're absolutely, you know, hot topics, as well as the diversity um, uh, mandates that a lot of the institutions, as well as the regulators themselves. So we actually have had a couple of really interesting sessions um, certainly ASIC in Australia, the Australian Securities and um, Investment Commission, um, Kathy Armour, who's one of their most senior women, she spoke a lot about even how the regulator was driving for more diversity within their leadership teams for exactly the purposes that you're talking about, to give that, you know, broader view to make sure that they are, um, you know, thinking differently maybe about how they're thinking about regulations. And so we're actually going to do a session now because ASIC have been really um, supportive of the Risky Women radio podcast. And so they want to bring in even more of their women to talk um, on that around different topics that they cover. And that's, you know, because the risk and compliance space is big from consumer to actually the institutional areas that we need to talk about. And, and one of the sort of big questions that seems to be bubbling up is I think boards are certainly feeling the the accountability and the responsibility of compliance and risk, uh, and also the the role and the responsibility they have in in driving change around diversity. When you get a few layers down, that's when it becomes uh, a little stickier, argue, arguably, in terms of sort of entrenched behaviour that has been, as you mentioned, you know, going to go around financial institutions and they're, they're largely uh, male. Um, but I've, I have quite a lot of empathy for that, actually, which is if you're hired in a certain way and you're recruited in a certain way, you're trained in a certain way, you're paid in a certain way, you behave in a certain way. And I'm just quite interested in what are the shifting and potentially accelerating dynamics that will drive greater diversity in those middle management layers and whether you've got any views on that. I mean, I think it's a really challenging area because you look at the amount of money that's been spent on, you know, training, whether it's, um, I think, a recent statistic that I saw was in Australia, they'd spent something like $8 million on um, on unconscious bias training. And actually then some of the studies that they'd, they'd looked at, you know, people who'd taken their unconscious bias training and it just really confirmed that what they thought was true. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of confirmed their bias rather than... Okay, you know, challenged it and changed them. it, yeah. And you look at even a lot of the... Um, the courses that people are put through don't seem to be moving the needle, um, which I think is unfortunate. And I don't know how we, you know, necessarily move move things forward. I think some of the good things that are being done are things like even the, you know, the big four, the EY, the PwC, et cetera, they're now saying I'm not going to recruit, you know, even my graduates from the same places that I always had with the same degrees, et cetera, and I'm going to look more broadly to bring in a mix of different people. 
And I think the innovation agenda is really helping that because people understand that they need to have people approaching things in different ways. So maybe that's going to be the big hope is that because people need to be more agile, more innovative, everything's being disrupted, that they're going to have to start to, you know, change the way they do things. And, and that must be a really fascinating role because um, certainly if I, if I think about you know, on, on my business side where we work with, you know, technology firms that are thinking about compliance and thinking about surveillance and the reg tech world, if you Correct. want to call it that, you yeah. know, and, and looking at how the, the mastery, let's call it, of data yes. and how you can extract insights and value and flags. And, uh, and of course, there are now jobs and roles which didn't exist, you know, five, 10 years ago. So presumably the compliance world is going, well, first of all, we need to kind of get tooled up, but also think about understanding uh, the certain roles that are coming through in our organization, which we probably didn't understand five years ago, which, which to me sounds very exciting and full of, full of opportunity. Yeah, and obviously, um, in from a Thomson Reuters perspective, we consider ourselves the oldest fintech um, in the world, and we're looking at all of the the intersection, especially of fintech and regtech. We're obviously a big data company. We're looking at how you can use artificial intelligence and all of the the you know the tools that are now out there, um, and we're also looking at even from that data perspective. Um, what's the other data sets that companies need to protect themselves? So, I mean, that's an interesting one in terms of modern day slavery is we have partnered with several um, NGOs, which I think is kind of a very unique perspective um, uh, in, in the business world to actually gather data that other people don't have. So we work with Liberty Asia who have um, something called the the um, Freedom Collaborative, and they have, I think it's about 35, but it's growing all the time, 35 different NGOs collected to the, connected to the Freedom Collaborative. And then they source um, their data from them and they obviously all, you know, can be based everywhere, Thailand, Cambodia. They're looking at local newspapers and other reports that maybe, you know, we don't get on the, on the sort of more global perspective. They check and vet the data initially um, and then using Salesforce, and Salesforce are another great organization who give access to NGOs to the Salesforce platform. And so from the Salesforce platform to our Salesforce platform, we pass names and data. And then obviously we have our own teams of people who are checking that, that data as well. And then that goes into our world check system, which all of the um, banks use. For... And that's presumably fl- flows through in sanction monitoring. And... Correct. Okay. Screening. Right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, then all of the, the, large banks and corporates around the world um, are using that data. And then that's sort of this whole kind of idea of following the money and stopping that flow of money to those people. So I think that's kind of a unique, uh, innate, unique way we're doing things. And, and that's really wonderful to hear because you, you sort of do particularly around diversity. We hear more and more people saying, you know, kind of when the, when, when the uh, opinion around where the money sits, and whether that's in terms of investment performance or whether that's actually in, in, in kind of corporate construction and ethics, et cetera, that that is ultimately where certain organizations are setting up indices, thinking about where they're going to invest, and, and that, that now is a contributing factor. And, and to hear that the data is going as far out into thinking about modern, modern day slavery is, yes. is, is, is phenomenal. 
So the, I think one thing that's been really fascinating is looking at the role of uh, senior and actually kind of middle management and junior uh, compliance talent, which are now arguably have one of the most important jobs. I'm not just saying that because you're here, but actually one, arguably one of the most important jobs in financial services. And, and we've talked about some of the shifting dynamics around innovation and, and reg tech. Um, I know one of the things you think about is reaching out to that young sort of emerging talent coming through. Tell us a bit about how you're encouraging the next the next generation. Yeah, I mean, we started off definitely connecting um, uh, to the most senior women in risk regulation and compliance. Now, some of that was just the demographics of the people that attend the conferences um, that we run or the, the regulatory summits that we run. Um, and some of that was, you know, just our ability to cope with the number of people. And we wanted actually a, a relatively small community where we could bring peers together um, for them to connect and collaborate and, and learn from each other. Um, but then I was increasingly, you know, there's a real fight for talent in compliance, um, which is sort of plays in with the, the reg tech angle as well, because we need to improve the, the way things are done because we can't find the number of people. But then the sort of what I call the emerging talent that was coming through all then wanted to get involved in the network also. Um, and I guess some of that is mentorship, sponsorship, and just, you know, having the role models, which is fantastic. But then how I could scale that, how I could get to more places and to more people. And as, you know, not just be for women, but also sort of extend um, to make these role models available to the the men in the industry whether they were emerging or experienced um so we started rescue women radio really to do that um to number one continue this sort of connecting continue the the celebrating and um championing these you know real experts in the industry if you like and and how, how do people listen to risky radio tell, to give us a plug go on tell us, tell us where i can find it so we are on every channel itunes spotify uh google play um all of them i think podbean <laughs> yeah we're on everything <laughs> so risky women radio Wonderful. And, and, and how long has it been going for and how many guests have you had on? And So I've only done six episodes, so I'm just a, a real beginner compared to you, Julia. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been great fun, actually. Um, I like the, you know, conversation and getting to meet people. And it is still that connecting and collaborating that I think is absolutely and, and I And I think one thing that I really love about it is the fact that actually you've got such senior women stepping forward and the whole thing about mentoring and sponsorship that you were talking about. So, so long may that continue. Absolutely. And there's, and now I'm getting, even only after six episodes, I'm getting lots more people writing to me saying, you know, can we, can we speak? And so, you know, I will have a regulatory risky women regulators um, kind of special um, session and then um, power women I've done um, and obviously you're a power women yourself so this is a um, power women network that we're both both members of yeah <laughs> and so I've already spoken with Diane Mullinex so that one actually should be released in the next uh, few weeks um, and I'll speak with Tanusha who's obviously been on the show as well so. absolutely so uh, just just for listeners that was Tanusha Randry who was on I think episode three of series two talking about a VCs and PE so she's Correct. Apex Partners yeah yeah so I want to talk to her about what's that diversity angle around where people would invest and you know is there an appetite for people to 
be thinking about that, and certainly at the VC level, are they taking those kind of things into account? And and one of the things I I just constantly impresses me, particularly in, in the kind of the modern world, as we go through this kind of uh, this momentum of change, is how that those it, those sections and those networks are beginning to, to connect to each Correct. other, which is, yeah. which is an incredibly powerful thing, incredibly powerful thing. So I think that's a really good moment just to pause there, and we're going to turn to Robert and Cynthia, who have been doing some research to support the discussion today. In 2017, a survey carried out by Gartner with 364 security and risk management executives found that male executives outnumbered female executives by three to one. As the gender balance in the workforce begins to even out, it is likely that there will be more female leaders entering the risk management industry. Roberta Whitty, Gartner's research vice president said, by 2020, with business acumen as a key competency, Gartner predicts that 40% of executives in security and risk management will be female. Not only are women well suited for security and risk management professions, women in the study see the professions to be an excellent career path. Human trafficking is the second largest illegal business in the world after drug trafficking, yielding an estimated $150 billion in illicit profits each year from the criminal enslavement and exploitation of approximately 21 million people worldwide. It is also one of the world's most underreported crimes. How the financial services sector can help tackle human trafficking is a report by Grant Thornton. It shows how financial services can seek to tackle the issue through their supply chains and show how the industry can increasingly help to combat the threat in compliance with the UK 2015 Modern Slavery Act. So thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S. And you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Brightstalk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating. It helps promote the show. So, um, Kimberly, I wanted to come back to one of the things we touched on very briefly this question of modern day um, slavery. So talk us through the enormity of the challenges you see it. Yeah, um, it's it's a huge problem. Um, estimates are, um, according to the Walk Free Foundation and IOM, that there is over 40 million uh, modern day slaves. Um, and it's an industry now that's considered to be worth 150 billion, which is, you know, three times the profit of Apple. Um, it's an incredibly global problem. It exists everywhere. So I always say it exists in my home country, in my host country and all of the places that I'm travelling. And I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, when I first got involved was even I had this view that this was happening somewhere else. You know, I might live in Hong Kong, but it was maybe it was happening in China and it was happening in India, but it wasn't certainly happening in my home country, but it was. And then... Um, I heard that New Zealand was a transit country um, and that there was problems in Australia. And suddenly I went, wow, this is, you know, all around us. It's in everywhere that I travel and, you know, people need to take more notice and, and, and think about what they can do. 
And and how do you how do you possibly engage with the enormity of that challenge? I mean, I know this is something you really think about. I mean, you could you could you could step away and just go, it's too big, it's far too big for me to deal with. But but you've sort of stepped up to it. The probably uh, there was a couple of different NGOs that I got involved with in Hong Kong. So uh, one was the Mekong Club, and Matt Friedman from the Mekong Club is is incredible, um, and then Liberty Asia, and um, both of them were looking at how to engage business. And they were also looking at what things that they could do around preventing rather than the cure. So obviously, if you're a lawyer, you can help prosecute uh, uh, and, and, and help people who are victims at the end. But if you look at the statistics on that, it is, you know, 50,000 people that actually are saved and there's prosecutions that are brought forward. So that's a rounding error on a 40 million person problem. Um, so I thought using data and using, um, you know, the tools and the capabilities that Thomson Reuters has as a, as a company um, were brilliant ways to, to help. So that's why some of the partnerships came about with the NGOs. Now, the Thomson Reuters Foundation has done an amazing amount of work in this space. So they actually were at the forefront um, using their own journalists to report on slavery. So when it was a very underreported story, they were reporting on it and really raising awareness. I think now you see the stories in far more mainstream press. And so that has, is although it's still important, the raising awareness, I think, is higher. They also match lawyers with pro bono um, work that the NGOs need. And then they ran um, and they continue to run a conference here that was called Trust Women, now called Trust Conference, which is probably the the leader. Um, you know, they have over 500 people attend their their conference here. So we have the sort of baby sister conference in, in uh, Hong Kong, which is now called the Stop Slavery Summit. Um, so we sort of rebranded from Trust Forum Asia to Stop Slavery just to make it a bit more obvious and a bit more action oriented. And that's been running for four years. And with that, we try to do very business-related um, themes. So last year we did um, banking solutions, we did legal and regulatory solutions, supply chain solutions, and data and technology um, spotlights. This year we're um, looking at it from the investor's angle and we're also looking at C-level and director responsibility. So we've got one big theme around putting the S back in ESG because our view is that the environmental That's the environment piece, social governance. Correct, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the environment piece is getting a lot and I think needs a lot of uh, focus, but the S, the society piece, does not get nearly the same focus and that's where the slavery... And, and can you just bring it to light a little bit more in terms of how does how does the, the modern-day slavery reveal itself in, for example, you mentioned the supply chain? There's certain industries that are... Um, very high risk. So obviously I, I live in Hong Kong, so we all have domestic workers. Um, uh, well, a lot of us do. Um, and so there's risks for the domestic workers. Often not necessarily um, what's happening in their immediate home, although that um, often is a problem, but they come in un, in severe debt. So that's sort of bonded labour is one of the um, issues as well, although things can happen to them like people hold their passports and therefore they are not free to leave. Um, if they are in severe debt and some of them are in that debt for more than, you know, six or eight months and they're having to pay back all of that so they're not actually earning any money, so, of course, they can't leave. Um, then you've got industries like the fishing industry. So, you know, fisheries is particularly bad for men and boys 
who um, who are often trapped on, you know, fishing boats for four years. If they get sick, they're thrown overboard. And this is the shrimp and the fish that we eat. Um, so you will see now there's a lot more focus around some of the big companies that know that they have problems in their supply chain. So, yeah, there are um, corporates who are looking at their supply chain, especially if they're in fisheries. So if you look at like Thai Union, they will be able to tell you now what actions that they are taking around um, uh, where they can, where they know that there's risks and things that they're taking, to the things that they're doing to, to change that. Um, you know, construction is another big one where there's a lot of problems. So, you know, all of the, you know, buildings in, you know, for the World Cup, et cetera, in Qatar, there's lots of issues there. Um, but things like the Modern Slavery Act, certainly in, in the UK, um, uh, the US and most recently in Australia, are forcing companies to at least, you know, make statements and do um, show that they are being proactive around what's going on. Now, each of the Modern Slavery Acts, I think, gets better in terms of the requirements that it's putting on companies um, because some of the statements on the, you know, UK Modern Slavery Act statements are weak. Some of them are fantastic. I mean, you look at Marks and Spencer's, they've, you know, got fantastic statements as well as, you know, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, people like that have done quite well, but others are quite tick the box <laughs> and, and, then, and bring it back sort of close to home with in the financial services sort of industry you mentioned about the um the, the i mean they're very it's crystal clear in the world of banking and obviously the flow of payments is 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 flaming are payments flowing down to the people who should be paid on on, on a fundamental basis um are there, what, what should i mean listeners whether they are a, a senior corporate leader or whether an individual in an organization what what should they be thinking about and what do you want them to do what's your call to action yeah i mean i think everyone has has the opportunity of doing something and whether that's, you know, certainly, of course, if you're a lawyer, you could look to implement and change laws or you could prosecute traffickers or things like that. But business leaders can certainly um, take a much closer eye at where what's happening in their supply chains. And the, the problem is that supply chains are incredibly complex and you've got to get, you know, below your first level suppliers and your outsourcing and all of those kind of things. And then, of course, you know, consumers can just ask questions about what is going on with the goods that they buy um, and, you know, really, I guess, think a bit more about, you know, if something really is that cheap, is that possible? Kimberly, I have to say, it's been the most fascinating discussion to, to think how you have the time, I, d I don't know, and to have <laughs> caught you sort of mid uh, your European tour uh, when you have su A, such an enormous job, day job, plus also thinking about um, you know women in, uh, well, the risk Risky Women movement, as I call it. I'm going to call it a, a an event or a podcast. It's yeah. actually a movement, which is amazing. And then to also care so critically and deeply about the enormous challenge around modern-day slavery. Um, we will support you in any which way we possibly can. It's been such a joy having you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be a part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.